This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. On the weekend leading up to Halloween, I was leafing through the New York Times and found an article called The Return of the Vampire King of New York. Something about the article drew me in, the club nightlife, the lifestyle, the occult references, Anne Rice, and interview with the vampire. But the profile of the vampire king, Father Sebastian, and his efforts at cultivating a spiritual vampire aura fascinated me. I found the author, Sam Kestenbaum, and began writing to him. Sam has lived an interesting life so far, and his wide range of interests in religion are reflected in his work as a religion reporter. He has lived in Yemen, the Palestinian territories, and China. Sam finds, researches, and writes about neat topics in religion and spirituality that are often pretty new or brand new to me such as the Awaspi Bible, the Kazman Temple, and the 90s vampire subculture of New York, which we speak about in depth in this episode. Sam is also particularly well-known for his work on the Black Israelite or Hebrew Israelites, which he's written about in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and the music site Genius, and also an upcoming collection from Rutledge. To highlight a few more of his interesting topics, he's written about the Igbo of Nigeria and their interest in Judaism, a Sri Lankan guru, a Jewish militia leader, and the basketball star Amari Stoudemire's interest in Judaism. He finds groups who sort of defy easy categorization and tells their stories, which is quite beautiful. I'm a new fan of Sam's work, but I'm going to read pretty much anything he writes from here on out. Do yourself a favor and go to the New York Times website and search for his name and read a few of his pieces. I'm really excited to have him on the show today to talk about his background, the research for a few of his stories, and his main motivators for writing about religion. Sam Kestenbaum is an independent religion journalist. He writes for the New York Times and is a contributing editor and former staff writer for The Forward, where his work won the first place Rockower Award for Excellence in Feature Writing. He spent several years working in Asia and the Middle East, where he edited a newspaper in Sana, a website in Ramallah, and a magazine in Beijing. He lives in New York City, and you can find him online at samkestenbaum.com. Please enjoy my conversation with the religion reporter, Sam Kestenbaum. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I am here today with my guest, Sam Kestenbaum. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can you briefly just sort of give a potted bio of yourself and introduce yourself to the audience a little bit? Sure. Uh, I'm Sam Kestenbaum. I'm an independent religion journalist here in New York City. I write often about religion for the New York Times these days. I'm a former staff writer and contributing editor at the Jewish Daily Forward. Uh, I'm also currently a, a Wertheim writer in residence at the New York Public Library. Excellent. So you have such a fascinating job, and I found you recently because of a piece that you wrote called The Return of the Vampire King of New York, which I found to be so interesting. Uh, but before we dive into all of the fascinating niches and worlds of religion that you write about, for a mass audience. I'm curious if we can talk a little bit about your background. Can you just kind of briefly talk about what your spiritual background is like in your own life? Sure. Yeah, this you know, this is a question that I'm I'm often asked uh more by subjects than than by colleagues uh you know, often because I, what I'm what I'm asking people to do is to open up to me about their lives and often what happens is they want to know something about mine and I'm and I'm happy to share that. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think like, like many of us, I'm a sort of, um, 
religious blend or kind of a spiritual polyglot of sorts. I was raised on a small lobstering island in rural Maine. Um, my father is from a family of New Jersey Jews who moved to Maine, and he would go out of his way to trek me as a teenager to a hour and a half away to the closest synagogue. Um, my mother, on the other hand, is a, is a Mainer from a long line of Congregationalists and Methodists uh, who also kind of dabbled in, in what I would call a, a particular type of kind of New England supernaturalism, the belief in, in spirits or um, at least a kind of curiosity about the, the supernatural. And, you know, this corner of Maine where I grew up was also really impacted by um, kind of like hippie homesteading and back to the land movements like a lot of um, the kind of Northeast was or other parts of the country. So I had a whole range of kind of new age new age type of traditions around me growing up. For example, I attended like really experimental schools, um, uh, one of which was inspired by the teachings of Rudolf Steiner, where I had learned things, you know, about things like uh, energy healing or, or dance around the Maypole. So, um, you know, so I, so I was uh, raised, I, I think, kind of blending all of these, th- you know, seemingly disparate uh, things together. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I was totally aware of it at the time, but, um, but, you know, as an, as an adult, I've kind of enjoyed doing a bit of this kind of excavation um, uh, on my own, you know, on my own experiences. You know, what's really interesting is that sounds like almost the perfect interfaith um, childhood and experiences <laughs> growing up. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's super I diverse. I don't think there's ever any kind of... Um, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't think I ever thought of it as interfaith, but but um, but you know, but there there certainly was a was a kind of a, a, a blending happening. You're right. So, as sort of like a an independent scholar, journalist, investigator, writer, what is your academic background like? So we kind of have the spiritual element now. So, how is your academics um, growing up? Sure. Yeah. Um... I, you know, I, so I, I, as I said, I went to um, pretty experimental uh, schools, both uh, elementary and then, and then in um, high school, I went to a, a kind of a democratic learning community, a, a very experimental, sense-shuttered school in, in, in Maine. Um, I went to Wheaton College in Massachusetts, where I studied uh, ethnomusicology, um, and, and the... Um, you know, I studied neither religion or, or journalism in, in school, but but kind of came to um, writing both through the through through summer work um, at a newspaper in Brooklyn and um, through English courses at at school. Uh, so writing was was a thing that I kind of gravitated to just as a, as a kind of a mode of expression. So you kind of came at it as sort of like uh, from a very, very indirect route, like not a traditional path whatsoever. <laughs> I guess you could say that, yeah. Many of, many of the kind of colleagues that I've come across, you know, in, in journalism, yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of ways into this industry. Um, and while I have a lot of friends who have done the journalism route, you know, most of, most of the kind of editors and, and reporters who have kind of mentored me be that at the New York Times or the Forward, um, these are people who also kind of learned on, kind of on the job, um, as, as I have. That is, that their journalism training came from, kind of from hands-on editorial experience. Can you tell me about when religion and journalism sort of clicked for you? Like, what was the experiences that really took you in that direction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, th- this emerged pretty organically, I'd say for me, um, you know, you know, my, my kind of entry into journalism really came after college. I, I, I moved overseas to, to Beijing. Um, I had a, a group of friends of mine who were over there doing kind of various English language, uh, teaching and, and work. And there was just kind of a, a boom in the economy there. And I, I moved over thinking I would land some sort of job and, and ultimately found myself, Working as a editor at a uh, English language magazine because I could write in English and kind of had had uh, a, a certain kind of editorial eye for things, and um, I, I I followed Beijing by traveling through 
the Middle East, basically doing the same kind of work that is working for local newsrooms, doing some freelancing on the side. But um, I kind of dove right into uh, the, 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 the work overseas. Um, so I, I lived in Ramallah in the Palestinian territories. I lived in, in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, running a, a newspaper there called the Yemen Times. Um, so in most of these places, I was doing a, a mixture of editing and writing. Um, and I think it was in uh, around 2014, I, I, I moved, returned to the States and came to New York where I started working for Harper's Magazine and later for the New York Times. And it was really kind of looking back at my experiences um, and themes that I kept returning to in my work that I saw that um, that religion was a kind of a, a through line. Um, so, I, you know, there isn't a kind of a particular moment, but I think it, it was something, a subject that I, that I, that I saw as really generative in, in my own work. Um, so I kind of made a, a kind of a, a turn there um, in kind of making it a conscious thing. But, but I think it was, it was always a theme there in the work. One of the things that's really interesting is I think that you notice something that I try to instill into my own high school students. And I say religion is around you, whether you know about it or not. And it's all about finding the things that you can pay attention to, to realize that it's everywhere, even if you try to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, right. yeah. So, I've read several of your pieces recently, and you stand out to me um, in journalism because you seem to find fascinating niches in religion journalism. Would you say that you sort of have like a niche now, something that uh, that you know really um, have you found your voice, basically? <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I guess I, I try. You know, I would say there's certainly a set of curiosities or motivating questions that I try to return to in, um, in, you know, basically any, any piece that I do, um, or when undertaking a, a new kind of research project. Um, and, and that is the, the, the people in groups who, who, who defy kind of neat categorization. Um, you know, I'm interested in, in religious creativity, innovation, blending, um, you know, people who don't fit neatly into religious boxes or challenge or even transgress um, communal boundaries, I, I guess, kind of outliers and uh, outliers and oddballs. Um, and, and, I, and I say that with respect. <laughs> yeah. So, like, some of the things I've loved that you've done is you've recently covered the uh, vampire subcultures, uh, Hebrew Israelites, Jewish disciples of a Sri Lankan guru, and, like, so many more. And these are all available for people to read on your website um, and online at the various publication sources. So I want to talk about, like, um, the very, very beginning of when you find a new story. So what has to happen in your process for a story to be worth pursuing and seeing through? Well, it has to be assigned first. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I have to make the kind of, you know, I have to make the kind of case to editors that this is something kind of worth pursuing. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, a, that's a major part of this, of this process is kind of working with other people and convincing them that that your ideas are worth their time too, right? Because these are the places we're talking about, like any like any institution, right? They're they're big, they're kind of big machines in which in which I'm a, a part. Um, and you know, for, for in for the kinds of pieces that I want to do, um, you know, access is really really important. So, um, you know, I'm not interested in kind of dropping in on, for example. Uh, you know, visiting this, uh, this, this, uh, for example, the, um, uh, these Jewish disciples of, of, of the, of this guru in, in Philadelphia, you know, I'm not interested in kind of dropping by one day, uh, you know, getting four or five quotes, um, going back and, and, and writing the piece up in an afternoon. Um, 
and you know what what I'm looking for is something that I can really uh, dive into, gain some trust, and kind of go below the surface um, of what one might see on a on a kind of a one day visit to a place. I, I'm interested in kind of a, a deeper texture. You know, I'm also trying to not go a kind of a worn path. That is, if if, if a subject feels like it's been given you know, great treatment elsewhere, um, I say, you know, congrats and, and, and kind of let, let them have it. Um, let, let kind of my, my colleagues who, who are doing that coverage, um, have that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really interested in, um, tilling new ground. Excellent. Um, and I'm really glad that you said about working with other people in the bureaucratic process of journalism, because I think that we're at a time in our country when the process of journalism is so misunderstood that I'm kind of glad you spent a moment talking about um, just what it takes to do good work and why the process is so important. Right. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I'm I'm, uh, very thankful to have worked in newsrooms and with people who care deeply about this work and um and you know i know there's there there are like valid critiques to be made of 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 kind of these legacy publication these legacy publications um but you know there there is a real kind of institutional knowledge that um that i that i really value um you know, when, when I meet someone who's an editor or a copy editor, all of these kind of unseen hands in this work um, who, who may not be on Twitter, may not have, you know, tens of thousands of followers on Twitter. Um, uh, but these are people who um, who are dedicated to the craft and, and, and that, you know, I'm always thankful to, to, to work with an editor who, who, who kind of has that ear for story and is willing to help me make my, my, my work better because uh, that's what, you know, reporters need their editors. So let's talk about some of that craft, some of those pieces that you've managed to put out. Um, I want to talk about a few of your pieces today. And the first one I want to talk about is The Return of the Vampire King of New York, which came out in an October 2018 article in the New York Times. Um, I'm curious if you can just kind of talk a little bit about this piece. Um, like, were you ever personally enticed by any types of particular subcultures and alternative alternatives to religion? Like, what got you into this particular story? Mm-hmm. What got me into this story was discovering the story within the story. I, I, I within the within this vampire story, I, I mentioned the case of this young reporter in New York who went missing while she was writing a story about vampires in the 1990s. Um, and, I, and I don't exactly recall how I stumbled on her story, but, um, you know, one thing always leads to another. Um, um, and, and, I, and I often see my stories as kind of plotted on one big map, and there are a lot of kind of intersecting lines here. Um, but this, this young report disappeared when she was writing about the vampire subculture in the 1990s in New York that kind of flourished here. Um, and I wanted to kind of know more about that. I wanted to know if it still existed. I wanted to know what this community looked like now. Um, you know, and and her story kind of factors in as a, as a kind of, uh, I think it's only for like one paragraph in the piece, but it it was the kind of kernel that, that led me to, uh, this New York times piece. Um, you know, myself, I, I don't think that I was ever, you know, I never had fangs or anything like that. But but the 1990s were, uh, you know, I think they were a really formative time for, for um, I don't know, for anyone growing up then, as I did. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember the, the kind of excitement of early internet, um, which played a, a big role in the spread of the, some of these kind of, the kind of goth or vampire aesthetic. Um, and I remember the the you know other things of that era that I think were were also um, kind of helped popularize like the paranormal or the supernatural like things like X Files for sure did, did, did a tremendous amount of 
um, in in popularizing and, and spreading ideas about kind of hidden knowledge and um, and I was so I guess I was interested in those types of things um, or they were definitely in my orbit growing up um, and then and then and then I think that you know fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons which I was not a player but were you know a big part of the culture then you know these things were also accompanied by um, kind of panics around occultism or witchcraft, uh, and 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 that always interested me. Um, both, you know, the kind of reaction to these subcultures by the the, the broader culture, um, in the ways that the kind of subculture would um, interact with that panic or take it in or repurpose it um, in some other way. So you spent a lot of time in the piece with. Um a local guy in New York City named Father Sebastian. How long did you spend with him um, when you were researching the piece? Um, see, I would, you know, I'd, I would go to his shop in in um, there in, in Manhattan. Um, um, I don't really recall how how many days, but many days I would go and, and and sit there in his cramped little shop as he was making fangs for his. Um, for his kind of acolytes and for his customers there. Um, and I would just, you know, it was a small space, it, and, I, and I tried to just be a, a fly in the wall. Of course, people know that I'm there, but, but um, I, you know, I just wanted to kind of sit and observe, even if I, these were not kind of formal interviews, like, here, let me get my tape recorder out, and, you know, you, know, you tell me your name, how do you spell it type of things, but, um, but really just kind of watching the kind of ebb and flow of, 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 uh, of business there, the kind of rhythms of, of this man's life. Um, so several weeks, um, how many days were spent there? I, I don't really recall, but several weeks. Um, this one was, was a slightly faster turnaround just because of the, the holiday was like fast approaching and, and there are only so many times in the year you can run a vampire story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, so, so that was a, a hard deadline um, that I really had to kind of rush to get to. Um, but there were, you know, there were also other things we did, like the, the guy Sebastian and I, you know, went out for coffee around the area, walked around the block. You know, try to, I try to do things with people that kind of, um, in which they can kind of let their guard down. They can feel comfortable with me. Of course, you know, they should know I'm a reporter and, and that what they're telling me you know, I, I, I will use, um, but I, but I want to kind of, I want people to feel comfortable, um, telling me things that, uh, that they would tell, you know, uh, they would speak about casually. Um, what kind of, um, what kind of memories jump out at you from that whole research process? Like what were some of your favorite experiences? Um, the, I, I really enjoyed the, the research component of these stories, um, and that is kind of digging in through the archives, looking at how other reporters and, and, and researchers and academics have 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 um, have looked at these communities and finding kind of what I can add to that. Um, you know, that's kind of a generally always exciting for me, um, and if I feel like I'm I'm kind of adding value or adding knowledge to what is out there that that's always really thrilling, you know, a frustration with the vampire piece and with some other pieces I've done is that, you know, I'm dealing with people who, who have kind of, um, had a type of a kind of a conversion experience in their life, right? They were one thing. Now there's something else. Um, they've had this kind of awakening to their true identity as they might see it. And, and so they're, you know, they're, they, they they're kind of a little frustrated when I want to know mundane things, mm. uh, like well, where you know where did you grow up and, uh, and what was your first job or um, you know things that happened before their their kind of great awakening to this 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 higher truth, and um, you know it, it, it's uh, it's just a kind of a, a curious thing to have to navigate um, to say like listen I respect that you have had this awakening but um, but I still need to know like how to spell your name and where you were born. And, <laughs> You know, the, the the things that kind of bring us, you know, bring us down to earth, and and and, um, and you know, doing that in a way that people don't feel kind of robbed of their 
right of this of this um, of this kind of transcendent or like new um, you know this new spirituality they've discovered. That's that's always a kind of a, a delicate thing to do. Um, and birth names, which is a is a is a is a thing that um, that in this story and in others, um, people feel like they've kind of left behind. Um, kind of getting those and insisting on them, um, especially because that's a real times convention. There's not much flexibility on that, and you know the bar is really high for 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 people who for whom we would um, kind of allow to uh, allow them to go by a pseudonym um, in the piece is like uh, we we wouldn't really allow that. Um, Are there yeah. any? Um, so you you mentioned sort of like beliefs and transcendence and spirituality and awakening are there any kind of beliefs that tie specifically the vampire subculture together like what is the ideas that that hold them together as a group there are it's a, it's a pretty diverse group of people i i guess the, the real unifying thing is is more like aesthetics and and um and is more aesthetics than belief, I would say, um, kind of broadly. That is like, um, uh, like, like aesthetics and culture. That is like um, kind of ways people congregate, um, uh, kind of style of dress, aesthetic, um, maybe like sets of books, kind of cultural touchstones. Um, but, you know, there's a real diversity within this culture um, ranging from people who, for, for whom it's maybe kind of nothing more than a weekend dress up. Sure. Um, and to, to those for whom it's kind of about... Uh, drinking energy from 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 another person, be it by like by kind of some sort of psychic power, to those who might actually drink like small amounts of blood and um, in generally in a, a like kind of a private um, uh, you know consensual setting. Did, it's a, it's a pretty diverse spectrum. Did the topic of religion come up in any of your discussions with them? Like, did they? discuss what they do in any kind of like religious way or was that uh, rejected sort of? I, I think, you know, they're doing this, this thing that, that, that a lot of folks do, which is to m make what to them are very important distinctions between spiritual and religious. So yeah, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of centerpiece of the story that the, the man, um, Todd Hoyt, father Sebastian, um, he, you know, he is, um, he kind of creates rituals. That's part of what he does. He's drawing from um, uh, kind of um, uh, kind of older magical texts or like um, kind of occult revival materials. You know, so he's kind of in, engaged in, in make in like writing what you might call like magic spells, um, uh, and and he, you know he th this for him is, is like is a a kind of a spiritual act. I mean, he's intoning spirits or, or, um, at times even believing that he's communicating with spirits. Um, and, you know, others in, in, in his orbit also kind of draw meaning from, from those, those rituals. You know, they might at the same time be, uh, be churchgoers or, or, you know, Father Sebastian claimed to me that, that, that he had Muslims and Jews and Christians who all came there to get fangs. So they're, you know, they, they might, you know, belong to a, quote, other religion, but have this kind of vampire practice on the side. Um, yeah. I love it. It's like the um, the layers of identity. It's wonderful. Um, another article that I really liked of yours um, is called A Forgotten Religion Gets a Second Chance in Brooklyn. And this is about something that is brand new to me that I had never heard about before I read your piece, and that is the book The Owaspi Bible and the movement of faithists, uh, seekers of light, Owaspians, and followers of the Cosmon religion. How did you discover the 
Cosmon Temple in Brooklyn and this community. Mm-hmm. So I have a, um, a, a practice of trying to visit a new congregation, temple, synagogue, tabernacle, uh, church, uh, almost every weekend uh, or whenever I can. And I, I often do this by walking to a new neighborhood I've never been to, um, kind of scoping out what looked like uh, interesting um, churches, storefronts, or, you know, big churches, whatever whatever I have here in, in, in New York, which is a, a, a very, very diverse and religiously eclectic city. Um, and I came across uh, the the um, the faithist uh, uh, um, the, the, the faithist temple there in um, in in Brooklyn um, sometime last year and uh, walked in and um, you know attended service uh, afterwards. Um, Introduce myself as uh, a person who writes about religion, as I as I always do. Um, you know, uh, I wasn't there, kind of writing notes on the record or anything. Like that very very much a kind of exploratory uh, time um, is usually how I how I approach those first visits. But um, but we got to speaking, and I was just really intrigued by this uh, this Bible, which I'd, I'd never uh, encountered before that they were all reading from and praising the, 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 the person who wrote this as, as their prophet. Um, very small church, maybe three or four, um, at the time, probably like six people inside. Very, very small. It had, had, had been larger and had kind of shrunk over the years, and they were kind of rekindling this flame of this uh, forgotten 19th century uh, Bible, um, in this small corner of, of Brooklyn. Um, and after that visit, you know, I, 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 I began um, both kind of doing research on the side, reaching out to scholars who, who knew this, who were all kind of baffled and surprised by my discovery of this small storefront church mounting a revival. And, um, and in the meantime, kind of kept returning. Um, uh, you know, now this, this one spanned a, a number of months just because it was a kind of a slow burn um, as I was working on, on other projects. Um, but I came to know the congregants very well. We'd share meals. Um, uh, we'd uh, speak after services. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really felt like I, I had a, a, an interesting story here uh, and was able to get one of my times editors to, to us to get on board. And, um, and the, the, the kind of the, you know, the, the narrative, I mean, the story of this Bible is fascinating to me, but the story of this congregation is, was also really intriguing to me that it was, that it was a, 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 a church that had kind of fallen on harder times, had discovered this, this unusual Bible and had come to believe that it might kind of revive their congregation also. It might, it might give kind of spiritual sustenance, but could actually kind of help them kind of, uh, kind of breathe new life into this, um, into their diminished congregation. So, you know, it was, it was their kind of, the congregants' own kind of personal story, um, their narratives, which, which also kind of moved me uh, to write this. So the Owaspi, I've never read any of it before, um, not even before talking to you, I didn't have a chance to, but as a journalist who painstakingly and very, very carefully worked with um, Faithus, how did you approach some readings of the Owaspi Bible? And I know the, the Bible means sky, earth, and spirit, um, and it's said to be an ancient language that's revealed in the book, but how did you approach your own study of this book? Sure. Well, you know, we, we would do, on, on the days that I would visit, we would do kind of textual study of the book. Um, and, you know, I was, I, I was interested um, in the book um, and those, in those study sessions also were, you know, 
they, they, they were they they function on on a couple of levels. It was I was able to familiarize myself with the passages of the book, but also, you know, maybe more interestingly, to see how how these people interact with this text, right? Because the book, in its kind of in isolation, is a really interesting document, and it has these otherworldly illustrations. Uh, you know, a real kind of um, a beautiful and uncommon um, document. Um, but but I think for the purposes of, of, of my piece, kind of seeing how how this book was lived or or was a kind of a lived document, a living document for um, the, the group of seekers uh, was also important. Um, you know, at the, at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm also, you know, I am reading passages of it uh, on my own, um, finding what kind of scant scholarly research there is about this text out there, which there's not much. Um, so, I, so I'm kind of approaching it on, on, on multiple levels, but always keeping in mind that the, you know, for my, for my readers, probably for, for this type of feature writing, right, the most important thing um, is really going to be these people's story um, and kind of knowing how deep to get into the weeds with with this book, which is fascinating to me and which I could could do, but I, but I think that would not be, um, you know, a, a kind of a deep analysis of, of the Owaspi Bible is not, this is not the place for that. Um, so always kind of keeping in mind what, you know, what New York Times readers need to know um, in order to kind of be drawn to the story. My last question about the uh, Faithus is about the prophet John Ballou Nubro, who was a dentist who received the Owaspi Bible and published it in 1882. What do you find to be the most interesting thing that you learned about Nubro? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. The you know what's you know just kind of briefly. Um, so right, so Newbro was raised in Ohio. He tried his hand at gold prospecting. Um, he moved to New York, where he worked as a dentist, and then he was kind of in kind of spiritualist circles of the city, attending um, seances and things like that, or going to the Burned Over District in upstate New York. And then in the 1880s, he he produced through a process of automatic writing this book called the Owaspi, and he said. Angels were guiding his hands over over the the typewriter, which was still a kind of a new and novel um, uh, new and novel machine then. And it's this massive book, illustrated as I said, and it features thousands of gods and goddesses. And it drew it draws from all sorts of sources like Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Native American traditions. It's this real kind of um, collage of, of things. And he gained some followers. He preached vegetarianism and a kind of a communal living, and he left the city for New Mexico for to form a, com, a commune, which ultimately failed um, as as the kind of um, city, mostly city dwellers, kind of failed to anticipate the, the harshness of of of, um, of life uh, in, in that setting, and sickness also ravaged the the, the place. They had they also had um, orphans there, and and and, um, and that caused some controversy. As some of the the orphans also fell sick. So, but he he died and, and kind of fell into, um, you know, he, he fell into obscurity. Um, his project uh, kind of lived on in small little embers throughout the country, but um, but it, it it more or less, you know, faded away. You know, I think the thing that was really interesting for me about his story was. That you know that that you know the the kind of window into this exciting, uh, dangerous at times formative years of a new religion, and you know our country is scattered with these uh, stories of failed projects and communes and 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 I think what what Newbrow what what the 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 faith of story what what Newbrow's story illustrates is that you know there's no single reason why one fails and and, and one flourishes right like mm-hmm. broad contempt broad kind of um contemporaries of, of, of new time would be like the mormons christian science seventh-day adventists 
Um, and, and these grew from small denominations to kind of established American institutions, um, while Newbro's project faded away. But you know, history could have gone so many different ways. And, and I think that kind of looking at in, in a kind of granular way, or, or or kind of looking back at some of these projects, which um, you know did not kind of institutionalize in the same way, or uh, only survived in, in kind of very, very small, very, very kind of reduced capacity, I think, uh, helps us rethink um, some of our assumptions about what makes for successful religion. Man, Sam, that's what I really appreciate about your work so far, is like you seem to find these spots where history could have gone in an entirely different direction and really explore that and dive deeply into it. I appreciate your your work into that. That's so cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so a few more things that I want to talk about um, before we go today is I want to talk about um, sensitivity around religion. And so you have like such an important job. So religious sp- expression is very hard to discuss because of the sensitivity of getting something wrong. So as a journalist, your role in, you know, getting it right is extremely important. Um have you had any experiences of getting any negative feedback from subjects that you've profiled and like, how do you handle the delicacy of the topics? Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely negative stuff. Um, let's see how to put this. I think the, the journalist job is always to, to get it right. Um, and that, that is whether you're covering religion or politics or anything, you know, and you know, that might, uh, sound kind of basic but you know i don't think that covering i don't think that covering religion is any different covering covering a religious community is any different than than covering any community um you know sure there's uh i guess i i don't think that a spirit like a kind of religious experience or spiritual life is like kind of off limits. Um, I think it's a. I think it's a. I think it's something to be discussed, to be interrogated, and and written about with a, you know, with with as kind of clear an eye um, uh, as any as, as kind of any any subject, um, if that makes sense. So, so I so I don't know if, if if it's my job to be more sensitive than uh, a reporter covering city politics or anything like that. Um, and and that's not to say you know I I, I would I take people's religious life uh, seriously, and that's why. You know that's why I, I I would kind of cover it seriously, um, um, you know in terms of in terms of kind of negative things you know it, it's a yeah it's a it's a it is kind of a constant dance because you know some of the some of the stories that most of the stories that I do and some of them which I've explained to you today you know involve gaining a, a lot of kind of trust from from sources you know this I don't think is any different than kind of profile writing of of uh, in, in general or feature writing in general. But um, but those challenges exist in, in, in this kind of religion writing too, where you where you are um, you're not a, a friend to the subject, and they should know you're a reporter, and and you're not here to kind of boost or um, center somebody's story. You know, I'm not I'm not an ally. I'm a I'm a writer looking for a story, um, and and I try to you know make that as clear as I can, while also trying to communicate that I'm. You know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sympathetic, but I'm, but I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to kind of find the story that, that is to kind of make the story my own, um, and not to kind of tell anybody else's story. So you don't have to go into any like specifics on this, but I'm curious if you've ever walked away from a story because you felt nervous for yourself if you moved forward with it. Nervous for myself. Yeah. Like, were you ever like scared or like um, very apprehensive? Like, did you ever walk away from a story because you were just like kind of nervous how it would all shake out in the end? Um, I... Mm... No, I don't think. Not for. I, I don't think so. No, I mean, most of the most times that stories don't work out um, 
for me, it's never it's never been kind of out of a concern of safety or or anything like that. Though I, you know, I when I was a staff writer at the Forward, I I, I did cover a lot of um, uh, kind of anti-Semitism anti and, and white nationalism, um, and you know, there was a time I, I was profiling a, a militia leader in in Ohio who was a um, he was a, a, a young Jewish guy who somehow had found himself the leader of a kind of an anti-government militia in Ohio. And so I'm out in the woods um, shooting uh, shooting guns, doing kind of target practice with these guys. Um, and, I, and I guess I, I should have felt a little, a little uh, you know, um, concerned there. Uh, but, 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 I, but I guess I wasn't. I don't know. I, I'm... I'm uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, I was too deep in the story to walk away then, right? Um, yeah, it's awesome. It's I'm glad someone's doing it because, um, I mean, you have to have a strong stomach for it, and you have to be a little brave. And I, you know, I appreciate your bravery in going forward on some of the stories that you've done. It's really cool. The, um, you know, the the other thing about kind of letting stories go is that I, um, you know, I have like a uh, like a big sheet of paper in which I will write down. Um, kind of scraps of ideas or leads or things like that, and while while one might while one story might not kind of come together for various reasons, oftentimes like that it um, it might feel you know even for me a bit too marginal, a bit too kind of narrow, and um, or or the person's story arc might not be kind of dramatic enough uh, to kind of spin off into a a proper feature. But um, but I never like cross I never you know cross these little scraps off. I always kind of think oh maybe like next year maybe this one will you know something will kind of bring that to the fore. Um, so I have a like a pretty big list of of ideas that you know I'm kind of waiting for them to to uh, to kind of grow legs and and and, and maybe kind of come to fruition uh, in the next year. Nice. I do sort of the same thing. I, I have my calendar right next to me on my desk here, and I have a list of about 15 people who have expressed interest in being on the podcast, and I have different dates of email so-and-so on, on my entire calendar for the next several weeks of like scheduling, and it's really uh, kind of a fun balance to see who you're going to talk to in the future. So... You have a really interesting profession of going out into the world and having these amazing experiences and then telling your readers about it. And a byproduct of your work is that you are making people more religiously literate. People are knowing more about the world because of some of the work that you're doing. So can you just tell me a little bit about why religious literacy in society matters to you? Yeah, I think I think you kind of... Um you you hit it there when you said as as a byproduct and and I don't want to um I'm not I don't want to like dismiss your question at all but you know I, I I don't think I I really um I don't spend too much time thinking about about that question um you know I I I I I, I it it may be an impact or an effect of my my work is that people learn more about um, the kind of religious diversity or kind of, um, yeah, the religious diversity of the country. But, um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm most, my, my project is a bit more, a bit more narrow, um, in that, you know, I'm really interested in, in, in stories and, and that is kind of both personal stories, but also the kind of broader American story. Um, and, you know, if, if what I need to do is, Kind of catch my reader up to speed in order to tell that story, then I will. Um, but you know, I, I I don't. You know, I, I think I think the the, the work might be. Um, yeah, I, I don't kind of set out to kind of educate readers um, in in exactly that way. I'm. I'm if I can kind of give my readers a character or a, a conflict or a, a tension or a community that they didn't know about before and that they kind of carry that with them and it makes them curious, then, um, 
then that's that's great to me. Um, but you know, I, I don't see my project as expressly kind of educational. Well, Sam, you are making my life better because I am reading all of your stuff now, and I think that everybody else should too. So in that spirit, where can people find you, find more of your work if they want to know more about what you're doing? Sure. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm on all of the social media platforms on Twitter, on Instagram, um, at S. Kestenbaum. And my, my website is uh, simply samkestenbaum.com, and that'll link to my all sorts of clips and, and uh, uh, yeah, my, my general body of work you can find there. Sam, that's our hour, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.